Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. If you're using one of the hardback Bibles from out front, you'll find it on page 5. Uh, we will uh, look this morning at the entire chapter. Uh, and again, uh, it is our practice to stand when we read God's Word. So let me ask if you're able to do that, uh, to stand now. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, He created them. And He blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam uh, that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters, Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the, uh, that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the day, days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us now, uh, that you would uh, have us understand uh, your word but most importantly, that you would point us to Christ. That you would open hearts and minds to see, to hear, and to know Jesus. Through Him we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Are you a, um, 
are you a grave, graveyard walker? Do you, do you like to every now and then, if you can, take a stroll through graveyards? Some people find that a little too scary, creepy. You know, I'm not, I don't mean going out at midnight and walking through graveyards, but there are things to be learned by taking a stroll through a graveyard. That's basically what Genesis 5 is. You're, you're wandering through a a graveyard and reading headstones. I, I grew up at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. It's now 222 years old. Um, so the gravestones from all ages, all eras, and in order to get from Sunday school to church, you had to walk through the graveyard unless you went out front and walked along the street. And I could probably still in my mind picture, sort of pull up some of the images, some of those headstones, tombstones that I had to pass walking from Jackson Hall over to uh, the sanctuary for worship. Some of them were tall, some of them were short, some of them were flat, some were all kinds of odd shaped. Some were families or groups inside of a fence, like this wrought iron fence. You had to walk through the graveyard. So you got used to seeing certain names, you got used to seeing certain patterns as you walked from Jackson Hall over to the sanctuary. And what you find is that that walking through that graveyard and walking through Genesis 5 are really exactly the same thing. You look at headstones and you get the same information from, from tombstones as you get from this passage. They, they have Three things in common. Notice, first of all, you're always given a birth year. Notice that that everybody has a a year of their birth. Okay, you're not given, you know, 1900. You're not given, given, you know, 1848. You're not given a number that is in relation to Christ, B.C. or A.D. or now it's BCE and CE, but Christ is still the dividing line between the two. You're given a number in relation to to Adam. It's, it's where it starts. It starts actually with a. It starts with Adam's age, and then gives you numbers from there. Notice you're given particular information in the first two verses that we haven't been given before. We learn some things in verses. Uh, one and two that that Moses hasn't recorded yet. We've seen already in Genesis one and two that God is the creator and sustainer of all of life. That He spoke into existence all that is. That He upholds it all by the power of His mighty hand. And He, we have that language here in verse one. We have that language of. God created man, made him in the likeness of God. Moses reminds us of Genesis 1.26 all over again. Don't forget that God created Adam in his image. That's not a physical image. God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like a man. He's not limited to physical presence. You and I can't be everywhere at any one time because we're stuck in this body. God's not limited by a body that way. So it's it's not a physical image, but it is spiritual and personal. And Adam is designed, we're designed, we're intended to to bear that image to the world around us. 
So Moses reminds us of that image in verse 1. But notice he also goes further than he has yet. He, he reminds us in verse 2 he's been cre- they, that man has been created male and female and blessed by God to be fruitful and multiply. He takes us back to that, that promise of blessing, the first command that God gave to mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That first great commission, if you will. Notice, too, there's a reminder of Genesis 2 at the end of verse 2. You remember before God made Eve and presented her to Adam, do you remember what Adam had to do? God paraded the animals in front of Adam and said, now here, name them. And whatever you name them, that will be their name. That will be what they're called. The one who gives a name, our our children don't name themselves, parents name them. We don't wait until they grow up and choose their own name. Parents name them. It's it's part of having authority. It's part of, of... that loving care and and power and authority over others. That's part of the image in Genesis 2. Adam, by naming the animals, God is reminding him they are subject to you. You're, You're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and rule over the earth and subdue it and be my vice regents on the earth. But where does... Adam get his name? Where does man get his name? We're told in verse 2 that God did it. God named it. You have this image again of, of, that's right, we are subject to God. Not just because we've been created, not just because we're created in His image, but He's named us, proving yet again He is the King, He is the authority, He is the ruler in our lives. It's a a sign of of authority and mastery over us. But this is a genealogical record. God is to be our Father, too. God is to be Father to His people. We're created for an, an intimate, personal relationship with God. And all of that is communicated to us just right off the bat in the first two verses. As you walk through the graveyard, as you walk down the the line of tombstones in Genesis 5, we're reminded all over again of our purpose as God's subjects, but as vice-regents, as His princes on the earth, to walk closely and humbly with God and to carry out His rule and reign over creation. The, the, the picture here is that all of the earth is God's kingdom and we are His subjects, not oppressed serfs and peasants, but princes and princesses in God's kingdom. Part of the picture here is to say that 
man's chief end has always been to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That has always been true. We also see in this passage, when you see these birth years, as you walk down this line of headstones, of of tombstones in Genesis 5, as you walk through the, the graveyard, Adam's family plot in Genesis 5, you're also reminded of God's faithfulness. You remember that first command. You remember that first great commission that God gave to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. The fact that Adam has a family burial plot is evidence that he's been fruitful and has multiplied. That God has been faithful to carry out, to preserve the line of Adam, the seed of Adam. God is blessing His people. One common feature in Genesis 5, and in any graveyard for that matter, is on every tombstone you're given a a birth year. You're also given a a death year. You're given the year of their death. The the date of their death. I, I wouldn't recommend this. This would not, I don't think, be a, a good idea. But if you were to turn Genesis 5 into a song, the refrain, the chorus, would be three words. Sort of like the Avett brothers and it spread. The chorus of Genesis 5. In fact, I even tried to read it in a way that made you go, there it is again. And he died. Over and over and over again, we're told eight times in this chapter, and he died. You know that's the first time you get that phrase? We haven't read that yet. Okay, there's been death. Cain killed his brother Abel. So there's been death. There's been murder. And we've, we've read another genealogical line in Genesis 4. Over and over and over again, this chorus, this phrase, comes out at the end of every sort of person, and he died. You know that's not supposed to be there. I mean, that, that, should, that, should, that should make you sort of cringe every time you read that. It's not supposed to be true. That's not supposed to happen. That was not how creation was made. Death was not there. It wasn't here. We didn't have it until sin entered the world. And so over and over and over again, as you read Genesis 5, you face this, and he died chorus, and you should every time flinch just a little bit more. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's a a stark reminder of the effects of the fall. That the effects of sin are everywhere you go. In fact, death seems to have the last word every single time. Did you notice that? It's like so-and-so, you know, fathered so-and-so, and and then they had other sons and daughters and lived this long, and he died. The last word on any given person in this list is, except for two, is, and he died. Death seems to have this, this pervasive hold on Adam's line, on Adam's descendants. 
everyone, it seems, loses the battle against sin and death. Everyone loses that battle against sin and death. Turn back with me. Back up just a... It should be just one page to Genesis chapter 3. Verse 19, as, as God, after the fall, God pronounces a curse on the serpent and on the woman and then finally on Adam. And in verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam knows he's going to die. Adam knows his children are going to die. Adam knows that death is now a reality. It wasn't. But now, as a result of the fall, it is. As a result of the fall, death has this constant refrain, this constant theme. Paul picks up on this in Romans 5. Tells us that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We have graveyards at all because sin is real. Without sin, we don't need graveyards. Without sin, we don't need tombstones. Without sin in this world, without sin breaking into God's perfect creation, we have no need for family burial plots. Notice too, Adam was created in God's image. Whose image does Seth bear? Look at verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. Yes, the image of God is passed on to Seth. Yes, God's image is, is passed on to his descendants. But now there's something wrong with it. Seth isn't created in God's image. He's created in Adam's image, which is not just the image of God, but also the marred image that sin creates. It's like, I think I've used this illustration before. It's, you look at yourself in the mirror. It's not you. It's a reflection of you. It's your image. It looks back at you. It's not you, but it's you. Punch the mirror. And now look at yourself. Spider web, maybe some pieces of glass have fallen out. You kind of have to bob and weave a little to get different glimpses of different parts of your face because you can't see it all anymore because the, the image is now messed up in that mirror. That's what sin has done to the image of God in us. It's, it's marred His image. It's, it's marred and affected His image in us. Seth bears Adam's image. The image of God, yes. Marred and tainted and affected by sin, yes. The chapter reminds us that sin is real. The chapter reminds us that graveyards exist because sin is very much a reality. And, and some level, 
we're supposed to read this chapter and be almost a little depressed by that and he died phrase. Have you ever noticed how sometimes you stop and look at the wrong tombstones? Like there are times when you'll go wandering through graveyards and you'll walk through the same graveyard maybe over and over again until finally you say, I'm, I, I haven't been that way yet. I keep walking this way. It, it, again, the tall column tombstone that was really a memorial to veterans that had lost their lives in the war. It was right up against Jackson Hall as you went out that door towards the sanctuary. Woodrow Wilson's parents in a fence just before you get to the sanctuary. The same pattern over and over and over again. Sometimes you realize you're looking at the wrong tombstones. It was a few years before I realized if you just take a left and walk 20 yards down the other sidewalk, there's a John Hooker in the graveyard at First Press Columbia who signed the charter for that church in 1795. That's all I know. I've done none of the ancestry and going, hey, this could be kind of cool. Am I related? I've done zero of the work. But to me, that's actually kind of cooler than some of the other gravestones I had to pass on the way to the sanctuary. We do that with this chapter. We read through Genesis 5 and we stop and look at the wrong tombstone. We miss the point. Here's why. Because Bible trivia games only care that Methuselah was the longest living human in history. See, that will win you a point in a Bible trivia game. But that is missing the point of this chapter. If you walk away from Genesis 5 with... Oh, look, Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. That's the oldest man that has ever lived as far as we know. You've missed the entire point of the chapter. Moses cares more about Methuselah's father than about Methuselah himself. Because when you get to verses 21 to 24, your song, the chorus, is gone. That and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, that you've been singing at the end of every verse, you don't sing it here in this verse. Notice that Enoch doesn't die like everyone else. He's taken. Just imagine you're out playing golf with Enoch and all of a sudden he's gone. You're out whatever. You're wandering around with Enoch and then all of a sudden he's, he's gone. He's taken away. He's taken... He just suddenly was no more. You've, you've seen, I'm sure, the, the rapture Bumper stickers, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned and you know, you're know you on your own and all that. Makes me thankful I don't believe in the rapture. But that's part of Enoch's story. 
that, that all of a sudden, He's gone. He's taken. He was not because God took Him. The third thing you see in common with uh, graveyards and this passage, not just birth years, not just death years, but they always have a dash in the middle. You've even heard people point out that, that your whole life is lived just in that dash. And depending on how big your, your tombstone is, it's half an inch, an inch and a half. I mean, how long is that dash? Your whole life is, is summarized in, in a dash. So what is different about Enoch? What makes Enoch different from everyone else? His, his story, his dash is different from everyone else's. Look back at verse 18. And just recognize that Jared represents everybody else in the list. I'm not going to read every single one of them. We'll only look at Jared. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived 800 more years. Notice the story of Enoch. Notice his dash. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. From now on, Enoch doesn't just live. He walks with God. He has perfect fellowship with God. He's in communion with God. Enoch walked with God and he fathered Methuselah. About 300 years after he fathered Methuselah, 300 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365. Enoch walked with God. And he was not. He's not described as just living. He's described as walking with God. He's in fellowship and communion with God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, We read this just a few minutes ago. Let me just sort of observe the way the writer of Hebrews uh, points this out about Enoch. Hebrews 11. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Enoch lived by faith. Enoch lived looking forward to the promise of the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. He lived anticipating judgment for sin and deliverance from sin through some Redeemer, through some Mediator. In fact, let me turn a few pages to Jude. The book of Jude right before... Uh, Revelation. Jude, a book written actually by uh, Jesus' brother according to the flesh. Uh, yeah, two books, James and Jude, written by his, uh, his brothers. Look at verses 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying... Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all 
and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Notice there's anticipation of judgment. To execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly deeds of their ungodliness they have committed in such an ungodly way. And all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Enoch anticipates judgment for sin. Enoch anticipates deliverance through a mediator. That promised seed of Genesis 3. In the words of one poet, when Enoch died, he changed his place, but not his company. He walked with God on the earth, and he didn't actually die. He was taken and merely changed his company. His place, I mean. He didn't change his company at all. He just changed locations of where he was walking with God. From walking with God on the earth to walking with Him to perfect, complete fellowship with Him in eternity. There's hope in this passage. There's hope here for us. Yes, death seems to reign. Yes, death seems to be the chorus of the song of Genesis 5. Yes, and he died, and and he died, and and he died, and and he died. Yes, there's that pain and struggle and cringe in us every time we read that phrase. But we're reminded also that for those who have fellowship with God, for those who walk with God, death doesn't get the last word. That death is merely the means by which we as believers change our place, but not our company. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise of of John 3. The Father sent His Son into the world that we might have eternal life. We have access to eternal life, not through our own lives, not through our own strength, not through our own obedience, not through what we do in that dash between your birth year and your death year. We have access to eternal life in the world to come through an empty tomb. Through a tombstone not that says, here lies, but it says, here lies nobody. He's not here. He's gone. He's left. This tomb is empty. We look outside of ourselves. We look to Christ. And through Him, we have the hope and promise and comfort of eternal life. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. First, as I've I've just mentioned, if you're here this morning and you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, if your hope for eternity is Jesus and in Him alone, Death is merely changing your place, not your company. Okay, yes, you you are among the church militant now, you'll be with the church triumphant then. Yes, you're in Christ now, you'll be in Christ then. Yes, you're singing His praises and, and honor and glory for your salvation here, you'll be doing the same then. That doesn't 
change. You'll merely change your place, though not your company. Still with Christ, still with the church. Physical death is merely a a means by which we gain permanent, complete, sinless, to the fullest extent, fellowship with Christ. A second application. This passage reminds us that God is patient. Enoch lived in anticipation of judgment, lived longing for deliverance from sin and the effects of the fall. He lived in anticipation that God would judge sin. How do you know this? Not just from Jude. He named his son Methuselah. Here's what that means. When he is gone, it will come. There, go name your next child that. When he is gone, it will come. If you do the math, Methuselah died in the year of the flood. Methuselah died, maybe not in the flood, but at the time of the flood. When Methuselah died, God's judgment for sin came in the flood. You're you're 200 years old. No, no. You're 350 years old. And you're one of Methuselah's buddies. You, You play golf together every Thursday. You hunt and fish together. He's 350. And you're ribbing him about his name. When he's gone, it will come. You're 350, Methuselah. At 600, you're still ribbing him about his name. 600. The Reformation was 500 years ago this year. So, there you go. To give yourself some perspective... At 800, you're ribbing him even more about his name. God is patient. Yes, he promises judgment for sin. Yes, that judgment will come. But God is patient. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. Methuselah's name only reminds us of God's patience. But it also reminds us that judgment is sure. That yes, he is patient. And yes, to him, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Yes, you and I think that you know, 20 minutes is entirely too long for anything. 969 years of patience. From Methuselah's birth to the judgment for sin and the flood. But that judgment comes. Maybe you're here this morning thinking... I mean, I'm, I'm over 40. I'm over 50. I'm over, you know, whatever. I'm over 30, feeling old. I mean, judgment? That's so far... I mean, that's not going to... Methuselah reminds you, Enoch reminds you to anticipate that judgment is coming. Your only hope, therefore, is to look outside of yourself to look to Christ, to escape that judgment. Trust in His life and death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, all for you. His blood shed for our sin, His resurrection accomplished so that we might have newness of life in Him. 
That's your hope. That's your trust. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You are, that you are a patient God. Knowing that we sin daily in thought, word, and deed, even as Your children, we deserve the wrath and curse of God. Left to ourselves, every sin deserves punishment. But You've been patient. Patient with us to draw us to Christ. Patient with us to, to know and understand Christ. To love each other. To love Your Word. To live to bring You honor and glory. Father, we thank You too that You are faithful to Your promises. And that just as surely as You brought judgment in the flood, You bring salvation in Christ. Just as surely as the promise and hope of judgment on sin is carried out, so too, so too is our salvation safe and secure in the hand of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would You strengthen us by that, that promise? Would You equip us even by that promise to see brothers and sisters and co-workers and neighbors brought into the kingdom that others too might not know death at least spiritual death, and anticipate eternity with You. Through Christ we ask it. Amen.